You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Happy to be with you, Kyla. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> we are at the sort of annual seminar that we do, Key West. Yes. There's a uh, um, sort of manage your law office um, legal ethics business uh, seminar that we attend not every year. You attend it every year, but I don't go every year uh, in Key West, Florida uh, by invitation only. And I have to say it is one of the most useful seminars we've had because think of all of the things we've come away with from it. Basically lots of good software and Mm -hmm. good ideas. Ways to better defend our clients and ways to better educate the public about DUI rules and defenses. Not just this podcast. Just such brilliant people who are here at this conference. And it's so exciting to be here because it is intellectually, seriously stimulating. Yes. Do you want to know what's sometimes not intellectually, seriously stimulating, but what we still need to talk about? Sure. Appellate case law. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you spring in this a <laughs> because I've just been thinking about, uh, thinking about management videos now or music videos. Yes. Um, yes. This is actually a case you found last week that we didn't have time to talk about on the podcast. Oh, okay. This is the case of Rafaela from the Ontario Superior Court. And it's a case about the definition of without reasonable excuse in the driving law provisions of the criminal code. So this always, um, these provisions basically are setting up a defense, right? The reasonable excuse. And then what is the expectation of what a person who, you know, has a right to silence, has no obligation to testify, uh, and is entitled to, uh, the burden on the crown of them having to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, what, what does one, what must one advance to establish a reasonable excuse? And there's lots of different reasonable excuses in the driving law conduct, uh, context. There's actually, I think the court counted, I think 16 times in which it comes up in the criminal code, this without reasonable excuse. But the most common ones we see are circumstances like where the um, person is alleged to have failed or refused to comply with a demand without reasonable excuse. Yeah. And you're sitting there, you know, you're doing your best to blow and you're trying to blow. And then you have to basically take the witness stand when the trial comes to explain what was going on. Like, how else do you put that evidence in unless you have a family member who comes and says this person has chronic breathing problems? Uh, and has existed for forever. One way or another, it requires a defense. Yes. But another one that we see often is when people leave the scene of a collision that they've caused, they can do so if they have a reasonable excuse. And there's lots of reasonable excuses. Well, I mean, like a classic example would be your partner's in labor, you're speeding to the hospital to get them to the hospital before they deliver, you cause a crash on your way there, but the baby's crowning and you got to get them to the 
labor delivery room. I don't know. Well, you have an accident and the other person's threatening to murder you. Yeah. Um, and that happens uh, more often than by accident. Yeah. Or, or you're in an accident and you can be in rough shape and need to leave or your passenger could be. Car accidents are the most uh, significant single thing that triggers cardiac arrest, for example. Yes. So there have been other instances in the criminal code where there are um, references to without reasonable excuse. And prior to the December 18th, 2018 changes to the criminal code coming into force, in effect, there was a provision of the criminal code, section 794 sub 2, which said that any time there's a reference to a reasonable excuse, the accused bears the burden of proving on a balance of probabilities any asserted reasonable excuse. So not just raising a reasonable doubt, you have to prove it on a balance of probabilities. The Crown yes. has established their case and then you don't even know what's in the trier of facts mind, whether or not they've established their case. And yet you still must fulfill that obligation prove it. to prove that yeah. yeah, on a balance of probabilities that you've got a reasonable excuse. So to, at the same time, this is going back in history a little bit. At the same time that Bill C-46, after it had been passed, but before it came into force and effect, there was another bill, Bill C-51, which most people think about as like the sex assault bill. It was the Gian Gomeshi provisions of the criminal code, but it also repealed that section 794 sub 2 section defining what without reasonable excuse is. And that legislation passed and then came into effect just days before the effective date of C-46. Which was December 18th, 2018. Yeah. So even though it was a later bill, it came into effect first. And so essentially in this case, in um, the case is called Refea, I think. I don't know how to pronounce it. R-E-F-A-E-H, 2024 ONSC-755. So in this case, Mr. Refea is allegedly involved in a street race with another vehicle. He keeps going. That other vehicle crashes into another car, a third car, and the person in the third car suffers bodily injury. And so he's charged, Mr. Rafea is charged, because his street racing actions, the Crown argued, caused or contributed to the crash. And so he had an obligation to stop, even though he wasn't physically crashing with anybody. He was still involved in an accident, right? Because you don't have to be the cause of the collision, you have to be involved in the collision in order for your obligation to stop to be triggered. Which is something that... Um people often complain about when they're reporting their collision to the insurance company or the police. Yeah. Um, there's always a, another vehicle out there that caused it and they responded and that's what triggered the accident. So it's a, it's always a bit of a stretch. You yeah. know, the, the, uh, the cynicism is usually, you know, look, you're the one behind the wheel. You made the decision to drive the way you did, but in any event, so spell is charged. Yeah. So he's charged and he takes the stand and testifies and he says, no, 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 I wasn't street racing anybody. This maniac was chasing me and I was terrified for my life. So I drove to get away from him and then he crashed into somebody else. But I was not going to stop because he was chasing me. I didn't know why. I thought my life was at risk. Kind of like the example you gave minus the whole direct interaction between the two. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not not unusual. This these things happen. Although I don't think they often happen to judges, even when they were young, to know <laughs> that these things happen. But similar things yeah. happen to me. Our judge was who street raced. <laughs> well, 
I wasn't street racing, but I, you know, in high school, people who decided that they were going to, you know, threaten me or whatever, chasing me in their vehicle. Yeah. The time I went to watch uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the movie theater and then on my way home, my the mirror just fell off on the side of my parents' car and I drove like a madman because I thought that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre guy, Leatherface, was going to get me in my car. <laughs> I, I mean, I could go back to the stories that I've got from high school. I don't necessarily want to relive them by repeating them, but it's not, uh, these things do happen in any event. So he takes a stand, testifies about this, and yes. then. And then the Crown says, well, he has to prove that he was being chased. And he hasn't proven that he was being chased. All he's done is said he was being chased. But where's the chaser? Where's the evidence of this? And he argues, oh, no. I don't have to prove anything. All I have to do is assert the defense. There has to be an air of reality to it. And provided I've asserted the defense and it carries with it an air of reality, then it falls to the crown to disprove that this did not occur. Okay. Or disprove that this did occur. Okay. So, so they could call evidence to try and undermine his credibility yeah. about it. Call the driver of the other car and be like, no, that's my buddy. Uh, that was my buddy, Mr. Rafea, yeah. and uh, we you might do street it. race. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you they could have done that. They know who those people are. They have the power to call witnesses. Exactly. They've they been. are the state. Yes. <laughs> so the judge in the appeal on this case has to do an analysis of whether or not it the burden is, in fact, on the accused to prove the reasonable excuse or whether the burden is on the crown to disprove any defense asserted that has a, an air of reality. Shifting it back to the crown life or shifting it to the defense. And so it used to be under um, previous to these changes to the criminal code that if you were raising a reasonable excuse, your burden was to prove the existence of the reasonable excuse on a balance of probabilities. There's a BC case called Gillespie that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada that affirmed that that proposition. And of course, it's codified in the criminal code up until 2018. So what does this mean? What does it mean? It means that the judge had to determine whether or not the common law that was derived from the interpretation of a statutory provision continued to prevail despite Parliament's clear intention in removing that provision of the criminal code. And the judge essentially says, well, Parliament's presumed to know the law, Parliament's presumed to know the case law and the implications of repealing a specific provision of the criminal code. They're also presumed to know the sort of constitutional scrutiny that could come upon a provision like that. They're presumed to write legislation that's constitutional unless and, demonstrated otherwise. And, you know, Parliament is always speaking, right? Um, meaning that any act they do must not just be interpreted to be just a change, but but a communication of their intention um, and ultimately determines in favor of Mr. Rafea. That, that essentially the common law principle still continues to exist because that's the only way it could be interpreted constitutionally. Yes. Valid. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and the common law principles that were interpreted after the enactment of 795 sub 2 no longer are good law because they pertain to to a system that had that statutory provision to guide their interpretation. Oh, okay. Interesting. So it's favorable to the defense, of well, one of yes. the few favorable to the defense decisions to come out since C46. 
fascinating. I was considering uh, the changes from C46 and the previous changes from July 1st, 2008, um, eliminating all of these defenses in drinking driving cases. And the interesting thing is when you actually look at the defenses they were eliminating, they were one-off, freaky, rare defenses. They were defenses that almost never happened. And, and at that point in my life, I'd been you know, practicing uh, DUI, impaired driving law for a long, long time. And we all knew of the one-off weird defenses. And they changed the code just because of those things. Because mm -hmm. one person somewhere in Canada was acquitted of providing a breath sample of 110 at some point for something. And one wonders sometimes if if Parliament recognizes the long reach their legislative changes will have, um, you know, we in court always assume that they made the decision as a rational decision, but you and I have presented at both the Parliament and the Senate. And one thing you find is that the legislators do not understand the implications of this, of their decisions. And here again, one wonders, we have to assume that they did. But one wonders if they did and if this was actually the intention in making this change. Yes. So I don't know. I think this is a uh, I think this is a big thing. I think it is important. Well, it's definitely important for us. <laughs> it is important for for us, especially when we're looking at reasonable excuse in uh, in uh, the context of refusal cases. Um, you know, there's a lot developing right now in refusal law. We've learned here uh, in the um, in Florida that they are now considering refusal provisions um, to be a felony in some locations, and this may happen yet, which is a very unusual thing for American law. That uh, there'd be a circumstance where you're compelled to uh, to assist the police in providing evidence against yourself, something that we in Canada have long accepted. Same with uh, in the UK. Now, speaking of things that have been long accepted now in Canada, yeah, Quebec, one of the few holdout provinces on administrative penalties for 0.05, is proposing changing the law to a 0.05 blood alcohol concentration limit for all drivers. So this was proposed by the opposition, though, I think, and yes. it was voted down. And it was, uh, you know, Ontario has been asking for the law to be, you know, matching the same in Quebec. So you can't, you know, be at uh, um, 0.07 in Quebec and then drive across the line uh, into Ontario. And then, you know, now you're committing an offense at 0.05 um, or vice versa, um, thinking that you can drink to 0.07 or 0.06 or to have a few drinks and then drive into Quebec and you're safe in Quebec once you cross the, cross the line. Um, so all I have to do is get to Quebec before I reach 0.08. And so this came up to me because uh, my name popped up in a Google alert and there was a photograph of uh, of an Alcosetzer 4 DWF and my name from some story from 2015 when we were uh, discussing this in some other context. Of course, this happened in 2010 in, in BC. But um, yeah, it, was, uh, it didn't pass. And of course, it wasn't proposed by the government. It was proposed by the by the opposition, and so you can't expect necessarily that that legislation is going to pass in that form that they propose, but it does look like it's something that is probably coming their way in Quebec, and the government is probably going to look at it and say, well, we're going to draft a bill that can actually make this happen, whereas opposition bills Which usually don't consider all sorts of 
of mechanisms of the government. Which would mean, a little bit of trivia for you, that there is only one place left in Canada that does not have a 0.05 standard provincially. Is that the territories? Is it not provincials? Not provinces? It's not provinces. Um, so it's only Yukon. Just Yukon. Just Yukon. Okay. Yep. So if you're in Yukon, you can be at 0.06. Reminds me of uh, our friend Keeley's slogan for her law firm. Which is? Uh, DUI means driving under the impression that you live in a free fucking country. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> governments are entitled to legislate. Uh, we, we rarely overturn. Uh, I, I, there's no time in history that I can think of where government lost their uh, power or lost their seats as a result of uh, implementing DUI legislation that was harsher. Uh, anybody who's ever been through this system in British Columbia probably doesn't feel that it's fair since the uh, immediate roadside prohibition scheme was enacted and came into effect in September 2010. Yep. Um, the uh, But they're not about to uh, get together and, and pick it outside of a MLA's office. You know, we were, you know, harshly dealt with by the government's tribunal or something like that. It's not going to happen. So it's, uh, as we've said before, you know, DUI, uh, suspected DUI drivers are low hanging fruit, um, and easy targets and, uh, an easy way to push through legislation that will be popular and get the support of the most powerful lobby group in North America, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Yeah. Hugely wealthy. Very powerful very motivated. Here's what I found interesting in the article that you were quoted in. They talked about how the introduction of a 0.05 standard in each place was associated with a significant re uh, reduction in crash injuries, deaths, and crashes. But, but, but there are also all sorts of other societal and sociological and technological factors that have contributed to that reduction in crash risk. Oh, yeah, we could go through it all day long. Um, so, you know, anti-lock brakes, airbags, uh, probably most important, stability control. Um, deaths in uh, in crashes are reduced just generally a huge amount in the last decade because of technological changes to cars, last 20 years. Um, crumple zones and and further tests of, uh, of collision, um, collision worthiness. Uh, all of those things have had a significant change but there was one study i recall where they were looking at stability control and stability control just leading to that many fewer collisions um the uh, it turns out teslas are in more collisions than any other vehicle probably because the uh, people are deciding not to pay attention or they're just faster to accelerate uh, but the collisions are very survivable most of the time, Teslas are pretty safe because a Tesla will take evasive action. Lots of cars will take evasive action these days. My Honda is already nine years old, but it maintains its lane, notifies you if you're departing from your lane, and if there's an oncoming vehicle, it will start to brake before you have a collision. Plus, you have um, more young people associated with greater risk-taking behavior on the road, yet fewer young people now have driver's licenses because we are becoming a more... Uh, less car dependent culture 
And also people don't have the money to pay for all of this. They and afford to drive. And young people, by and large, are drinking far less. And many of them are non-drinkers as compared to their older counterparts. And uh, that's wise, but um, still somehow sad to me, but yeah. still wise. Yeah. Sad and wise, wise and sad. Um, all right, Paul. It's time for... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. And also some free legal advice in and, this podcast. And this is uh, coming to you again from Florida. From Florida. And the free legal advice should be self-evident after I tell you about Mr. Gomez, who is in St. Petersburg, Florida, of course, and allegedly is on an e-bike, uh, running red lights, popping wheelies, driving into oncoming traffic. The police repeatedly try to stop him, but he's constantly fleeing. Which is an interesting story on its own. All of these little, little without resources, all of these new uh, electric the ways of traveling are also electric ways to get away from the police. That's not the legal advice. And, and, there's, and there's no license plate on there. And, uh, you know, a lot of times police are on foot or in their cruisers. Good luck catching up to somebody on a uh, overpowered e-bike or some yeah. such thing. Now, here's the thing about electronic technology as well. It's super cool to like do all that fun stuff and then flee from the police. Oh, and he gets away with all. He escapes from the police. Also That's has what? electronic technology attached to his helmet. Yes, he's recording wearing, stuff. Wearing a helmet cam, not just recording it, but streaming. So it's one thing to record. You shouldn't do that if you're going to commit crimes. That's legal advice. Yeah, don't Worst skill, <laughs> uh, don't stream it onto YouTube. It was YouTube, right? Don't upload your crimes to YouTube. Yes. So maybe you got a lot of views, um, but uh, of course there are also, as we know, police officers on TikTok and YouTube, and uh, they manage to see these things as well, yep. or somebody will send it to them. Yep. And now he's facing charges for fleeing the police, racing on a highway, failure to have motorcycle endorsement on his driver's license, and somehow, and we don't have the details on this, but I'm sure it's hilarious, threatening a law enforcement officer. Maybe he just did it in the comments. Maybe he, he <clears throat> gave them the middle finger. Who knows? Uh, police officers often uh, seem to take offense to things that uh, the rest of us would not necessarily take well, offense Police shouldn't take offense. That's stealing. Ah, ha, ha. Don't take offense. There's leave, legal advice. Leave folks. the fence <laughs> where it is, unless you've got particular instructions to take that fence. Exactly. Okay. Well, there you go. Podcast. That's the podcast. And if you need to reach us about a driving law related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.